This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. One of my favorite sounds every week is listening to you, the congregation, just singing praises to Jesus. It is one of the greatest sounds. There's those voices just reverberate off those walls. And I want you to know that it is one of the greatest sounds that our God and Father loves to hear from his people. And so take heart today. And if you're a person who doesn't sing out as much, use that as an impetus for you to sing out even stronger uh, next time. It's a good, good thing. Are you guys ready to study God's word together this morning? Then turn to Colossians chapter 1. I have to tell you that I have, had, I have just had fun studying the last three weeks and preparing these messages in Colossians. And uh, I hope that you have been richly blessed already by the first two and, and, uh, and that you're going to be encouraged today. Um, our world is a world of divisions, right? I mean, we, we are a divided people. We are divided in very serious matters, um, but we're also even divided in very flippant light matters. For example, I mean, some people love to shop at Target. Other people are just Walmart people. (laughs) You think about sports. This last week was the beginning of spring training, which that's good news for me because this is the world as it should be, uh, baseball going on. And I would just assume that probably for most of you in this room today that you are an ardent Red Sox fan. But I would also guess in a crowd this size that there are probably a couple of Yankees fans just to keep the crowd interesting this morning, right? And no comment. But then, but then we are divided on the deeper, more weighty issues of the world too. I mean, you think politically... I mean, we've gone through some really divided times, even as a country. I mean, you look, at, you look at the Civil War, you look at the 1960s, and so I'm not saying that today would mirror that, but it is one of the most divided times that we have experienced in quite some time. And even in this room this morning, it may be breaking news for you, but in this room today, there are people who would identify politically as Democrats, as Republicans, as independents, as libertarians, or either none of the above or partly of all of the above. But you know, as a culture and society, we don't even use those terms as terms of description as much as often we use those as words of consternation. I mean, it's like, did you know that Tommy, Tommy's a Democrat. And so we're, we're a very, very divided people. But here, here's the thing. Our social divisions and our political divisions, our recreational divisions, it's not even the greatest division. As a matter of fact, the, the ultimate division that we face, the ultimate uh, bad relationship that we experience as human beings is actually not with another human being. It's actually with our creator, God. Uh, There is a huge division between God and man. And accompanying that problem of division is the need for reconciliation to be made right again. And as we're going to see in the text today, God desires for his creation 
we, his creation, to be reconciled in right relationship, restored in relationship with himself. And here's the good news today. Not only does he desire it, he accomplished the means by which it might occur. So with that being said, let's go to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read three verses this morning, and we're going to study this this three-verse paragraph, beginning in verse 21 to 23. The Bible says this, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If you remember last week's text, we learned that Jesus is worthy of our exclusive worship because he is Lord over every thing. And the Apostle Paul instructed the Colossian believers to have a deep-seated theology of who Jesus is because there were false teachers tempting them to believe that Jesus was not enough to accomplish their salvation. There was more. Yes, come to Jesus, that's fine. Choose your own religion like reading a choose-your-own-adventure book. But there's more religion that's required. There's more practices that are required, more knowledge required, just more than Jesus. And you see, regardless this morning, brothers and sisters, regardless of time or place, we as people, we as the people of God, are always tempted to believe that there's more to what Jesus has already accomplished for us. We're always faced with that temptation. There will always be something new or someone new with a more entertaining or what might appear to be a deeper enlightened gospel to believe. And it crosses all cultures in all places of geography. And whether it's our own personal doubts, (laughs) you doubt, that's a human experience. Whether it's our own personal doubts or our neighbor's tempting ideology, you as a Christian disciple might this morning question your standing with God. I'm just going to ask you rhetorically this morning, do you question whether or not you're right with God? Have you ever asked yourself the question, you know, am I really a believer? Is the gospel truly enough? I mean, the dude says that every week, week in and week out, but is it truly enough? Was the work of Jesus sufficient or did Jesus get the ball rolling so that I could then come behind him and finish the task? And can I lose what I've already been given? So in reply to those questions, I have a key question of my own this morning. And this is where you can pick up in your notes. As a Christian, how can you be confident in your standing before God? How can you be confident Because God did not send his son to live the perfect life you were required to live and die the punishing death you were required to die and raise him from the grave and give you new life so that you would have ambiguity in your faith. 
And so that you would wake up every morning with uncertainty and wondering if all this is really true. No, he saved you. He pursued you. He sent Jesus so that you would have certainty and so that you would have confidence. And this is what Paul is reminding the Colossians about. And now 2,000 years later, since it was God's word to them first, now it's God's word to us. We're going to read it this morning so that we too might have confidence. So here we Let's just walk through this text. So how do we do it? How can we have confidence? Well, we got to at least see these things that Paul shows us. Number one, remember who you once were in sin. Remember. Remember who you once were in sin. Now, we've already sung about this this morning, and the guys are doing a great job on the worship team leading us towards those thoughts. But we need to think about and ponder who we were before we came to Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 21, there is a shift in the language. Now, if you go back to verse 15, which we looked at last week, verses 15 through 20 is all about he and him, referring to Jesus, the greatness of who he is, and the significance of what he has done. But then there is a contrast in the language when you get to verse 21, and it changes person and you. So now it's become very personal. In other words, all of these theological things we looked at last week about Jesus, it now has a dramatic implication on your life and on my life and our standing before God. And so when he describes, verse 20, describes us in verse 21, you could really sum up verse 21 with the word separation. Your life before coming to Jesus Christ, you were alienated. You were separated from God. As I, as I closed last week's message, I talked about the enmity between God and man that was instituted as a result of sin entering into the world. And I described our spiritual condition as cosmic World War III and the fight for the very destiny and control of your heart and the glory of God. And what Paul is going to sum up for us here in verse 1, in this very simple sentence, is it, is, are the three ways, at least three ways, that we were alienated from God. He says, number one, that you were relationally alienated. This is what your life was like before. He says, you were alienated. Now, here's what this means. God created human beings perfect, morally upright. And he created us purposely for his glory and to experience relational purity and relational intimacy with our creator. But man sinned. And that sin has now infected every aspect of the cosmos. Every aspect of creation. And that sin also has now been passed down through every generation of human beings who has ever lived all the way down to your grandparents and your parents. And yes, this morning, they have passed it down to you and to me. And consequently, as we've seen this week in Florida, the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. The world is broken. The good order God created originally has been disturbed. Chaos has now ensued. 
But as damaging as the effects of sin are on the creation itself, sin's greatest effect is the broken intimacy between the perfect God of the universe and us. Us, his treasured people. The Bible tells us in other places that in our sin, we are enemies of God. We are strangers. We are even aliens to the kingdom of God. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, if we're really honest, we know something is off. When we look around us, we know this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Some of our greatest leaders and writers and thinkers of the last century saw it also. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, said this, All humanity is soaked with a sense of exile, this feeling of not belonging, this feeling of there is a place we should be and we're not there. His good friend, C.S. Lewis, put it this way, If I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, then surely this means... I was meant for another world. So this sense of alienation ultimately stems from your separation from God due to your sin. And I want you to know this morning, this is no light matter. And until you are reconciled, the alienation will only grow deeper and will be more pronounced in your life. And so first I want you to see that your life and your past, you need to remember that you are relationally alienated from the one who made you. But secondly, he talks about a dispensational alienation. You were dispensationally alienated. He says that we were hostile in our minds. So you see, your sin nature not only breaks your relationship with God, but that nature also distorts your mind. It distorts the way you see God. It distorts your understanding of the world you live in. It even distorts the way in which you view yourself. And the language that Paul uses is actually quite harsh here. He uses the term hostile. I mean, was he just in a bad mood that day? I don't think so. In other places in the New Testament, we're told that we actually hated God. And we even suppress and do all that we can to not hear the truth of God. And you may hear all this and you may think, now, Chris, man, these antibiotics you're hopped up on, man, like, (laughs) I think you're being a little extreme here. Because I'm looking, like, I'm thinking about my life. I've been trying to think about my life humbly. And I look back when I was lost and when I wasn't following Jesus and I was in my sin Man, I don't know that there was ever really a time that I just woke up and just said, you know what, I just, I just hate you, God. Okay, I get that, and, and I might cede your point a little bit, but follow me for a little bit. I did not invent these terms. Like I, I'm, I wasn't writing this week and saying, man, I want these people to know that they hated God. Notice what the Bible says about you and me. The Bible says that we hated God. The Bible says that we were hostile in mind towards the things of God. Now, how? Here it is. Here's the way. This may be simplistic, but I believe this is kind of where we're going. Ultimately, when we are lost in our sin, we hate God by not loving him, but also not loving the things he loves. And we also hate God by failing 
to hate the things that he hates. Now, you could also do the converse of that. To say it another way, in our sin, there are many things God loves that we actually despise. And there are other things that God really hates that we actually love and run to. And what Paul describes that as is being hostile in mind. And so our relational separation gives birth to our dispensational separation. What you're seeing here is there's a natural spiritual digression of our sinful condition. Now, because we are alienated from God relationally, we, we are dispensationally alienated because of the way we think. And then because of the way we think, thirdly, you were behaviorally alienated. He says you were doing evil deeds. That's the spiritual equation that Paul is writing here. My relational separation from my creator produces in me a dispensational separation distorting the way I think. And if I don't think rightly about God, myself, and the world, it only makes logical sense then that hostile thoughts about God would then lead to evil behavior that would also be hostile towards God. So you see this morning in your lostness, It's not the sinful things you do that's the root of the problem. We are what I like to call band-aid people. We are the type of people who would have a profusely wide bleeding wound on our arm and just say, oh, just give me a band-aid, it'll be fine. And we're literally bleeding to death, but we just say, just put a band-aid on it. We're a people who treat symptoms real well. But we're a people who don't understand the root of many of our problems. And the root, the Bible tells us, is not the things we do, but the nature of who we are. The way I like to say it is, you're not a sinner because you do sinful things. You do sinful things because you're a sinner. And because you're a sinner, you're alienated from God. Now, here's how Jesus sums up our relational, dispensational and behavioral alienation in John chapter 3. I would probably guess that 99% of us in this room have heard John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Well, just a couple of verses past that, here's what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, this is the judgment. In other words, the ultimate judge, the ultimate standard of right and truth is saying, this is the indictment against humanity. The light has come into the world, Jesus. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And if you don't believe this intellectually this morning, believe it anecdotally. This is why even as a Christian, When you blow it in sin one week, you don't want to come to church on Sunday. Think about it. A lot of us will say, I'm just going to stay home today. Why? Because we don't want to come to grips with what we've done. We'd rather suppress it. We don't want them exposed, right? So Jesus, the ultimate writer and speaker of truth, exposes us here. Now, it may sound counterintuitive this morning, brothers and sisters, But if you're a Christian 
And if you want to be confident in your standing before God today, you should first remember who you once were when you were lost in sin. And the depth of your alienation, the depth of your depravity, the depth of your separation from your creator God. Because unless you remember where you've come from, it's hard to appreciate where we are today. Now let me just say this quick note before we move on. Perhaps there are those in the room this morning who, as you are listening, you're recognizing that you are still in sin. You can't say that this was me because you're recognizing that this is me today. What I want to encourage you to do is to come to grips with that fact and hear that desperation, but don't sit there. Now hear the hope. So here's what we do, Christian. We remember who we once were in sin. And then secondly, recognize who you now are in Jesus. Recognize who you now are in Jesus. (coughs) He says that this who you once were, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That word reconciled means to change or to exchange. In other words, there's a contrast. There's a before and there is an after. Do you see that in the text here? In verse 21, this is who you once were. And then verse 22, Jesus has now. You once were, but now. The Apostle Paul is always doing this. I mean, we, we say that sometimes. We look at our friends and we say, man, you always do X, Y, Z. Well, Paul always does this. And we don't have the time to walk through all the places where he does this, but just turn back to the book of Ephesians. Just a couple of pages to the book of Ephesians. I'm going to show this to you twice in this book. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, again, Paul is going to sum up the desperation of ourselves in our lost state. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Does that sound familiar to Colossians 1? This is who you once were, verse 4, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He does this exact same thing a few verses later in verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. We've seen that word already today. Alienated. From the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is who you once were, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now go back to Colossians chapter 1. You see the exact same thing. You once were. Jesus has now. There's always this contrast. Brothers and sisters, this is why I'm always saying that that little conjunction, but, B-U-T, 
is one of the most important theological terms in all of the Bible. And if you've been here at Mill City for any length of time, you've probably heard me say that at least 10 times in the last year. And here's the reality. As a result of that, because the little word, the little conjunction, but is so powerfully theologically here at Mill City Church, theologically speaking, we like big butts and we cannot lie. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I went to college in the 90s. I, I'm pretty sure there are a couple of people who are saying, oh, no, he didn't. I did. I did. Here's the picture. Here's why this is so significant this morning. You once were orphans, but now you're sons and daughters of the Most High God. You once were strangers, but now you're members of the household of God. The Bible said that you once were an enemy of God, but now you're a friend of God. You once were lost, but now you're found. You once were blind, but now you see. And all of this was accomplished because Jesus reconciled you by dying on the cross. But there's a purpose to it. He says that he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to. Here's the question. Why did God do that? Why did God send his son to bridge the chasm between sinful man and holy God? Why? Well, because it's what God does. And quite frankly, I deserve it. I'm very quite lovable. Just did it to do it because it's what deities do. No, that's not what the text says. The text says he did it in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There's a purpose to it. Recognize this morning who you are in Jesus. And I'm going to show this to you in two ways. Now, he uses three terms here, but I'm going to group two of them together and keep one of them by itself. So he says, in order to present you holy and blameless, above reproach before him. Number one, this is who you are in Jesus this morning. You are unstained before God. You are unstained before God. When he says to present you holy and blameless, this is hearkening back to the Old Testament sacrifices. Very brief history lesson here. In the Old Testament framework, what God had done is he had set up a sacrificial system by which the people's sins would be forgiven or atoned for year in and year out. And there was a whole priestly uh, function to it, a whole uh, liturgy that would take place, and, and, and there were processes by which they must be honored. But here's what the ultimate purpose was. The ultimate purpose of the Old Testament sacrifices was to point our attention to a greater sacrifice that would come down the road in the face of Jesus Christ. But here's what would happen, is the people would take a, a young lamb or a young ram, and they would come and offer it at the altar, and they would sacrifice that animal. They would literally split the animal open, killing it, spilling its blood, and putting it on the mercy seat. And it was a picture of their sins dying before God and being atoned for and for them to be forgiven. Now, 
Here's the picture in Numbers 6.14. I'm just going to go here very quickly because this is what God would command his people to do. He would say, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering. What's the common thread? Without blemish. You see, if you were an Old Testament Jew and you were raising animals for your economical good, and so you are breeding animals, and you have a farm, you have a ranch, then here's what you would be tempted to do. Okay, God says sacrifice a lamb. Well, I'll tell you what. Go get that lamb who was attacked by a wolf last spring. Get that lamb. He has a lame leg. Maybe he still has a gash in his back. Or perhaps they would look at the lamb that had a physical handicap who wouldn't actually be as productive as the rest of the litter. You know what? Go get the runt of the litter. He won't be as productive for us for the long run. The people of God would have always been tempted to go find the lamb or the ram who had the most defects that would cost them the least. But God says, no, 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 you get your finest. You get your strongest. You get the spotless, the one that is unblemished, without defect. You come and bring your best before me. One of the reasons why? Because God Almighty sent his best to you and to me. And these Old Testament sacrifices in in number six and other places in the Old Testament are pointing our attention to the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, he's with some of his disciples. He sees Jesus from a distance, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So now this sacrifice is not every year for the atonement for our sins. This sacrifice will be once for all, for eternity. And 1 Peter 1.19, Peter describes Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. And he says that we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, here's where it starts getting really good if it hasn't already. What Paul says uses the same language pointing back to those Old Testament sacrifices, and those Old Testament sacrifices point us to the unblemished nature of our Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Paul says that Jesus reconciled us to God in order to present you and me before God as an unblemished, holy sacrifice to the Father. And this is all done on his work and his accomplishment on your behalf. How in the world are you going to be an unblemished offering to God, knowing what you've done in this life and knowing what you've even thought this morning? But Jesus, by paying the debt for us, dying in our place, God takes his perfection, puts it on our account, so that when Jesus presents us before God, God sees perfect, unblemished sacrifice. That's good news this morning. And you can say, well, but but Chris, I'm a Christian, and I don't necessarily feel unstained. Because I do know what I did last week. And I do know what I've thought. Very quickly, let me just do an aside here. This isn't in your notes. It is crucial that when we think about who we once were, remembering who we once were in our sin, and we now recognize who we are in Jesus, that we recognize the difference between positional holiness and practical holiness. That positionally, 
You're standing before God today. Jesus, on your behalf, presents you perfect, unstained, meaning that God will never hold what you do against you again. You are positionally perfect before your Father. But the rub is here. We still sin, don't we? We still struggle. We still doubt. And we're still fighting that. And so the rub while we're on planet Earth is that we may not always be practically holy, but we are positionally holy. And it is the positional holiness that gives us hope in our times when we fail to be practically holy. But also what the positional holiness should do is it should push us so that as we are going through our life on earth, that five years into being a Christian, I am more practically holy than I was five years ago. And next year at this time, I'm more practically holy than I am today. In other words, the picture is, as I'm going through life, I'm being conformed and transformed so that I look more and more like Jesus with each passing year so that when I see him face to face, I actually will be both positional, positionally and practically holy for all eternity. I hope that that doesn't confuse you, but that it gives further clarification to our lives. Our holiness does matter in this life. But we will never truly be perfect until we see him face to face. But what hope this morning that through the reconciliation of Jesus, we are presented before the Father unstained, unblemished, just like that little spotless ewe lamb. But not only does he say that you are unstained before God, you are also unwavering in the world. Very quickly here, he says that you are holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That word above reproach has the idea of accusations coming against you. So if you're in first century Colossae and you have all these false teachers roaming around and you have all these different ideologies that you're metaphorically reading in the newspaper or watching on TV and and you're sifting through what's true and what's not and people, your neighbors start coming up to you and say, oh, you know, I think that's great that you're a Christian. I'm really glad that you have found something that works for you. Have you heard that before? But you know, that's just not for me. But can I just tell you that that sounds great, but you know, you really need to even become more enlightened. You, you need to go some step further. You need, to, you need more in your relationship with God. Jesus is great, but Jesus is not enough. You should add a little bit of diversity in your spiritual portfolio. And there are accusations, and then even from your own sinful heart. You know, when we do blow it, and we get alone in our thoughts, and the enemy starts attacking, you're a fake You're a hypocrite. You're serving on a ministry team at church and you're thinking these thoughts or you did that. You're not the real deal. Jesus didn't save you. The gospel's not enough. You can lose this just as sure as you've been given it. Been there? Paul says, Jesus reconciled you so that you will also be above reproach before God. There is no one and nothing to accuse you. There is no one to question your standing because you're not the one sustaining your standing. It is Jesus Christ who's done it. And he's bringing us to a place of confidence here. 
We are unstained before our God and we are unwavering in the world. So here's, here's where we're going with this. So how do we remain confident as Christians in our standing before God? And how are we rooted in our standing before God? Well, we've got to look back and remember who we once were. Because we, not be, we may not be today what everything we want to be and what Jesus wants us to be. But thank God, brothers and sisters, we're not what we once were were but then we recognize who we now are in jesus that what jesus has accomplished on our behalf is far greater than anything you or i could do on our own and then thirdly now you remain faithful to the gospel no matter what i love verse 23 he says if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, when Paul says that phrase, if indeed you continue in the faith, there is definitely the idea in the language that he is confident of this because he who began a good work in the Colossians, just like in Philippi, that's Philippians 1.6, if you want to write that down. He is confident that he who began the work, God, will complete the work. And so there is an air of confidence here, but there's also a warning here. There is definitely a warning implied in this language. And this is huge for you and for me. We believe in a salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, not by any works that you or I could ever do. We believe that. We preach that. That is our hope. But friends, that does not mean that after we receive the gift of Jesus and we are transformed by the gift of Jesus, that we don't have a human responsibility to play. You see it all throughout the New Testament. The gospel that truly transforms us will also truly empower us to persevere all the way to the end. And so we see that by the power of the gospel, that saving faith is always persevering faith. Always persevering faith. So remain faithful to the gospel no matter what. Three quick things I want you to see here to point us towards this gospel. First, the gospel is the foundation of your salvation. He says in verse 23 that we should not shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard. There's nothing new, okay? So we don't come to Jesus and come to the gospel and belief and say, okay, with each passing year, let me just discover new things that I can believe in order to be a more well-rounded a spiritual person. No, the gospel is what saved you in the beginning. It's the very foundation. It is the life spring. It is the source of your hope, not only for the first day you heard and believed, but all the way until you see Jesus face to face. The gospel is the foundation of your salvation. Secondly, the gospel is the motivation of your obedience. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, how in the world are you going to muster up the courage to make it 40 years, 50 years, 80 years, 
or perhaps for some of you it's five or ten years. How, how is it that we're going to stay faithful? How is it that we're going to continue doing what we're doing and remaining faithful to Jesus all the way to the end? Well, you just got to put mind over matter, man. You just got to try real hard. No, 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 no. The same gospel that is the foundation of your salvation is the same gospel that's the motivation of your obedience. You come back to the gospel over and over again. It's that same old story. It's that same old gospel. It's that same life-transforming power. And not only is it what saves you, it will work inside of you to sustain you all the way to the end. And that's your motivation. Your motivation is not to be a better you. Your motivation is not to just keep working hard. Your motivation is the gospel. Because the gospel is what transforms your life. And then lastly, the gospel is the proclamation of your mission. The gospel is the proclamation of your mission. He says, don't shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which Paul, I, Paul, became a minister. Now, very quickly here, this doesn't mean that the gospel has literally been preached in every single corner of the planet. Paul is probably using hyperbole here. He's probably using hyperbole. Like we can say this today, that even though the gospel has not penetrated every unreached people group, the gospel has literally been proclaimed and all over the world, right? We see this. So that's, that's the language that he's getting at. But do you see how he's rounding this discussion out? Is that when we remember who we once were and recognize who we are now, it's, it culminates in, I got to tell somebody about that. I, ca- I can't keep this to myself. This is the greatest miracle that's ever taken place in a human heart. I got to tweet about it. I got I to gotta, I gotta snap it. I got I to gotta post it. I got to go share it. I got to live it. I got to proclaim it, he says. And then he says, I, even I, Paul, became a minister of it. I don't know if you recognize this today, believer. Have you ever thought of yourself as a minister? Well, I mean, no, dude, I don't get the tax breaks, and I don't, <laughs> I'm not ordained at a, The Bible says that if you are in Christ, you're a minister. Because that word minister actually has the connotation of being a servant. You are a servant of Christ. You're a servant of the gospel. You're a minister of Christ. You're a minister of the gospel. It's one of the things that really separates Protestantism from Catholicism. Is that Protestantism believes in the very nature of the scripture... And what the scripture says that we are all priests. We are all ministers. We are all ambassadors. We are all representatives. We are all mouthpieces for Jesus on earth. And so this morning, I wonder if you would look at 2 Corinthians 5.20 with me. Because there's a, that's another passage. We're going to see this in just a moment when we receive communion But just in verse 20, for the purposes of our message here, after talking about the reconciliation that we have received from God through Jesus, Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
in the United States government, not just the U.S. government, but governments all across the world, we send ambassadors all over the globe to other countries' embassies. And those ambassadors don't speak for themselves. They don't even speak their own convictions. Those ambassadors have one responsibility, and the responsibility is to toe the company line and represent the views and the stances, the official stance of the American government and in particularly the President of the United States. They may disagree. They may differ personally, but in their professional role, their job is to speak for the country and to speak for the President. They are ambassadors. It's almost as if the President himself is literally making his political appeal through them. And that's what the Bible says about us in relationship to this world. That in this world of division, in this world of broken relationships, that there's an ultimate broken relationship, and that's between the human heart and our Creator. And as God reconciles individuals to Himself, He now sends us out into the world as His ambassadors, as His mouthpieces. And he is making his appeal through us. And so our message is not our spiritual message, but his spiritual message. And it's why Paul says in verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Jesus, be reconciled to God like I've been reconciled to God. I wonder this morning if there are people in your life that you need to implore. Perhaps they sit next to you in your cubicle at the office tomorrow. Maybe you go to the break room at regular times each week. Maybe they're your child. Maybe they're your mother. Maybe an uncle, an aunt, a cousin, a friend, a roommate, a sweet mate, a lab partner, a teammate. Who is it who needs to hear imploring from you to be reconciled to God? This morning, remember who you once were. Know and recognize today who you are in Jesus and remain faithful to the gospel no matter what, proclaiming him everywhere you go because Jesus the reconciler now sends us out to be messengers of reconciliation. Father, this morning we thank you for the work of Jesus on our behalf We thank you that when we were quite alienated, running away from you, that you ran hard after us. And we thank you that you took our life of separation and you brought us near and you transformed us from enemies to friends, strangers to family members, and you have now presented us as stained sinful people, as holy and blameless before the Father. And Jesus, today, collectively as a congregation, we just say, thank you. Thank you. Our hope is built on nothing less than you, Jesus, and your righteousness. Now, Father, I pray today that whether we are born-again Christians or people who are searching out for answers, I pray today that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would point us in correction where we need to be corrected, and that you would send us out of here this morning 
as changed people. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.